raise your hand if you have named one of your children Judas. Your dog. Raise your hand if you've named one of your dogs Judas. Your pet rat. That's telling, isn't it? That uh, name, Judas, is incidentally a wonderful name. It actually comes from the Hebrew word Judah, which means God be praised. A parent naming a child Judas was hoping that that child would be a very, uh, an emblem of God's glory and his praise. And yet no one uses that name for their loved ones anymore. Why is that? You know why. Someone ruined it. Someone took that name and made it synonymous with betrayer. We read the background to this reality in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and I pick up the story in verse 14 of chapter 26. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over to them. Sometime later, Judas was in the upper room celebrating the Passover supper with the other disciples and Jesus. And while they were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And I can imagine Jesus not just fixing his eyes on Judas, but looking all around the room. And the scriptures say the disciples were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. And then a few hours beyond that, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is speaking with his disciples, and the text says, while Jesus was still speaking... Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him was a large crowd who was armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And you know where it goes from there. They arrested him. They took him and they tried him. They tortured him. And then they hung him on a cross to die. And he suffered and he died and he was buried. Joe Saxton is a young female African-American pastor from Minneapolis who has thought much about this story. And in a recent blog post, she said this, You only need to look at popular culture to know all about betrayal. Whether it's Shakespeare writing Et tu, Brutus, in Julius Caesar, or Taylor Swift singing about bad blood in one of her most famous songs, Betrayal is a powerful ingredient in the stories we watch and the songs we sing. It's a powerful ingredient in our own stories too, says Saxton. We think of the parent who walked out on the family and 
didn't come back. We think of the mentor who exploited maybe your time and your talent for their own agenda. You might think of the colleague who stole your ideas and used them for, your, for her or his own professional advancement. You may think of the love of your life who walked away with your closest friend, stealing your happily ever after. Yes, we all know how betrayal feels, writes Saxton. And perhaps that's why, she says, Judas emerges as one of the most intriguing figures in the story of Jesus' passion. We know what he did. How he led the authorities to Jesus' secret hangout so they could arrest him without a crowd of fans in the way. What we don't know is why. But why did he do this? I actually think I do know why. I don't actually think that's a seriously difficult question to answer. Judas was greedy. He was greedy for those 30 pieces of silver. They seemed a better reward to him, a more dependable reward to him than continuing to follow Jesus. Judas was also angry. He was angry that he had spent all of this time following a Messiah who was not going to act like a Messiah. Who, who, who was not going to seize the political and military opportunities that were being presented to him by the huge crowd of people that were willing to follow him and move to take control and to overthrow Rome. Judas was both greedy and angry, and Judas was fearful. He was afraid that, that, that if he kept his wagon hitched to the Jesus Christ superstar, when Jesus Christ superstar went over the cliff as it seemed clear to Judas he was about to do that Judas would be dragged down with him and so Judas decided to get off the wagon to be done with this whole deal and to move on with what he could take why does anybody betray anybody else we know the answer to these questions it's always something that boils down to Hatred, greed, anger, fear, lust, envy, ambition, the deadly sins, as Joe Saxton suggests, these sins are actually behind every single uh, tumultuous plot line of our time. They're the storyline behind Game of Thrones and Empire and Billions and you name your particular song or story or life. This is why betrayal happens. We're not really confused about the why. So I don't want to talk about the why today, actually. I don't want us to dwell on the why. I want to get into the how. How did this happen? How did this actually unfold? And what lessons might there be in that reality for you and for me as we go forward in our journey in life? Uh, the first lesson that I think we can draw from this particular narrative is this one. You can begin brilliantly with Jesus, but end badly. That's true in a lot of spheres of life. You can start out well and finish poorly. I think we sometimes forget how brilliantly Judas began. The end of his story has so eclipsed our understanding of the man that we don't appreciate what an incredible start he had with Jesus. Judas was, in some sense, the star of the disciples at the start of things. I mean, think about it. He didn't just show up at church one weekend 
and, and, and show sort of a faltering commitment, Judas left everything to follow Jesus. You might quickly say, well, didn't all of the disciples do that? Oh, yes, they did, but not the way Judas did. You see, almost, in fact, all of the other disciples, the 11 other disciples, met Jesus in their backyard. They met him in the neighborhood. And even when they left their nets and followed after him to listen to this formidable rabbi teach and watch him do the work, they were always within a short distance from their family, their friends, their jobs. If this thing didn't pan out, it was not going to be hard for them to go back and just take up right where they started. Not so with Judas. History calls him, scripture calls him, Judas Iscariot. And the word Iscariot literally means, in the Aramaic language, uh, man of Kerioth. Judas was from the town of Kerioth. That was a town 110 miles south of Galilee where Jesus was doing his work, where all the other disciples were from. 110 miles in the days before Metra was a serious commute. On, 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 on your feet, it was, an, it was almost an eternity's distance. It was a very long walk. Judas had left behind, in a sense, everything to go all the way up north and to plant his life with Jesus and his disciples. He had made big sacrifices. He had taken a huge leap of faith. And it may be because of that reality that, that when it came time to deciding who held the common purse, who was the one that was going to manage the money for the group of disciples as they traveled? Uh, somebody probably suggested, hey, Judas is clearly all in. He's dedicated. He's really virtuous. I mean, look how far he went to follow Jesus. Let's pick him. And so they picked him to keep the common purse. Jesus also chose Judas amongst the then a couple hundred disciples that were traveling around in some shape or form with him to be involved in some of the most important work that Jesus did. Judas didn't just sit there watching Jesus, listening to Jesus. Judas was there and took part when Jesus called the 12 together. The scripture says he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. In other words, Jesus or Judas wasn't just a spectator at the ministry of Jesus. He was a player in the ministry of Jesus in an amazing way. He played a vital personal role. I mean, name the last time you healed uh, the sick and, and, and cast out demons and led people by the, by the throngs to the feet of Jesus. Judas had done this. This was a big part of Judas's story. What I'm trying to do is assemble for you a composite picture of, of a man who really began in a remarkable way. He was not just any disciple. He was one of the 12. You know, he made the championship game, is what I'm trying to say, right? He was on the squad. He was on the board of directors of the Jesus movement. And he was not just on the board of directors. He had been appointed the treasurer of the board of directors of Jesus' entire movement. Judas began brilliantly. Okay, are you with me so far? That's the story. Now, I think if you look around at our times, you will also note that we have many, many people who begin brilliantly 
with Jesus or in some other endeavor of life. Uh, I know of many people who went to Sunday school as kids, for example, and they were there just pretty much every single uh, weekend. They were the ones that raised their hand to answer the questions the teacher asked. They went on and to be part of some great youth group someplace. Maybe they went off on a mission trip and uh, they came back all excited. They were all in for Jesus. They were gonna, this was going to be the, the wave of their life would be influencing others in the name of, of Jesus. And then they got to college and other distractions kicked in and other siren calls sounded and they wandered away and many of them never came back or have not yet come back. I think of people who, who started uh, in successful marriages. I've, I've married more than a few right here in this particular spot. And, and I heard them make the vows to one another and pledge undying loyalty and commitment to each other. And then the years went by and it got harder and harder and harder. And, and they decided that maybe they needed to end this thing. I think of people that have begun great businesses uh, it went well at the beginning and they built it up and then gradually over time the thing crested and, and dragged and plummeted down. I, I actually think of some pastors who have been in the news in the last year who did great things with God and for God and for people through extraordinary ministries, amazing ministries. And yet some of them finished poorly. Uh, somehow, maybe just a little degree by degree, the pot of temptation heated up for them or their moral compass got off center and, and maybe those old deadly sins, those old-fashioned sins that nobody really worries about anymore, greed, <laughs> fear, anger, lust, envy, pride, maybe those things began to creep in and they began to occupy that place at the center that Jesus wants to be, the Holy Spirit wants to be. That's why the scripture says, guard your heart, because from it flow the wellsprings of life. Maybe that's what happened to some of these people. All I know is that they began to make choices, they began to handle resources, they began to deal with their relationships in ways that were not so good. They began so brilliantly and they ended so badly. We've seen this, haven't we? It's a part of the story of human life. I wonder how Judas kept the slippage secret. I've wondered about that in his story. I wonder how he covered it up. I wonder how he dealt with it inside of himself when he had begun stealing from the common purse, when he was beginning to doubt this methodology of Jesus and his particular kingdom, when he started to think about selling Jesus out altogether and leaving the company of Jesus completely, how did he deal with that? Did he just sort of um, lie to himself? Did he compartmentalize did he say to himself, you know, I'm, I know I'm kind of going this way now, but I'll correct in time. This is only for a little while. I'll, I'll find my way back. What did he do? What was the, the process by which he continued to go in this way so different from where he'd begun? Do you know the answer to that question? Can you answer that question? Do you know what it's like in some ways 
to betray the cause of Christ internally, subtly, partially, and rationalize it? I do. I remember when I was a secret smoker, I knew what I was doing, I was destroying my body. I just, but I compartmentalized, I rationalized, I covered. I've, I've dealt with this phenomenon in my own life and heard it so often in the lives of others. I think it's really important given our capacity to, to live duplicitous lives, to manage contradictions within ourselves and cover it up. I think it's especially important because of that reality that we take countermeasures along the way if we want to finish well. I think it's critical that we not rely on our past record, that, we, that when we think of ourselves and evaluate ourselves, we're not doing it based on uh, those snapshots. How many people in social media have, have, have uh, uh, selected somebody uh, in, and then gone for the first date and been shocked to discover that the, that the actual person was nothing like the picture? Because the person still thought of themselves as that beautiful picture, but frankly, over the years, some deterioration had taken place. Right? Do we do that with ourselves sometimes? It's important that we don't rely on, on moments when we, when we had intimacy with Christ, or we had intimacy with our spouse, or we had uh, a deeper kind of integrity and influence in our work in the world. We can't rest on what we learned about God years ago. I, 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 I've often heard from, from people who, when, when I ask them about their Christian growth process, uh, will say, you know, oh, I was part of this great Sunday school. I remember this great couples club. Uh, when we were just married, it was so influential. And I said, what have you done lately? Are you, are you part of a group now? And there's this sort of vacant stare. No, no. But I had a great experience there. It was a great experience. We can't say to ourselves, as we're tempted to, oh, I must be okay I must be a great person if they made me supervisor or they made me treasurer or they made me pastor. I'm sure that I'm completely safe since we've been married for so long. I'm sure there could be no problems since we just celebrated our ex anniversary. We need to keep investing in our important connections. We need to go back in and keep investing. Uh, we need to do that daily in our connection with God, in our connection with our spouse, in our connection with our wider family and friends and the people that matter. And watching the fall of so many other Christian leaders in recent times, I've got to tell you that one of the things that's kicked up for me is I have got to be on guard. Uh, I have got to pay attention. I've got to stay as close as I can to the source so that, that pride or anger or lust or some other issue does not become my downfall and then therefore the downfall of, of people that count on me got to have people around me who, who ask me hard questions and hold me accountable and have the courage to say, Dan, we're a little concerned about this. Because no matter how well I've begun, I want to finish well. And I bet you do too. There's a second lesson from the life of Judas that, that is also sobering and I think may explain why his story ended badly. And the scary truth is that you can hear the word of God repeatedly and still not take it in. Uh, I remember thinking when I was younger in the journey um, that if I had only been there when Jesus walked the earth, I would be an even more committed disciple. 
I, I, I thought to myself, you know, if I had hung out with him like those disciples did, and I, I'd heard him teaching all the time, and I, I'd, I'd watch him interacting with people, I would be such a better disciple. I hate the fact that I have to just read about it in the book, because I know I'd have been all in if I'd been there. Have you ever thought that yourself? Judas was there every day for three years. He was present for almost every word that came out of the mouth of Jesus. When Jesus said something that was kind of hard to understand, Judas was there to ask follow-up questions. Can you say a little bit more about that? I'm not sure I followed you there. What did you really mean there? He was totally present to the presence of Jesus. For example, Judas heard Jesus teach repeatedly about the power of money and material things. You cannot serve both God and mammon, said Jesus. You've got to choose because one or the other will own you. Judas heard all of Christ's very careful teaching about serving God first, but it didn't change him. It didn't get through. He still stole from the common purse. There's a story in, in one of the Gospels in which Judas and the other disciples are with Jesus at a dinner party and this woman comes in and, and she's obviously tr been tremendously moved by Jesus and she wants to express her devotion to him. So she takes this very expensive jar of perfume and she breaks it and she anoints Jesus with it and washes his feet with her tears and her hair. I mean, it's an incredible uh, picture of, of, of abandoned servanthood. It's a beautiful picture of devotion. Did Judas say, wow, what an exa example you are? No. Judas said, we could have sold that jar of perfume for some big bucks. And it would have gone into the common purse. And guess where that would have gone from there? Right? Material things were more important to him than even this spiritual devotion. In spite of all he had heard Jesus say. And in the end, Judas in a choice between the treasures of heaven and just 30 pieces of silver, Judas says, I'll take the cash, please. How did he get like that after hearing all of that powerful teaching of Jesus? And it didn't stop there. I mean, Jesus talked a lot, for example, about the kind of kingdom he was ushering in. Uh, he just said that this kingdom was not of this world. He described this kingdom as being a, a matter of the transformation of the heart. Uh, Jesus was very, very clear about these things. And yet, surprisingly, uh, Judas uh, did not absorb this notion that his kingdom was going to not be the political and military kind. Judas had come in with a particular uh, political viewpoint. Judas, we know from other parts of the scripture, was what they call a zealot. He was a member of the zealot party, and the zealots wanted to see Rome overthrowed, even if it had to be done through violence. And he saw Jesus as a very good vehicle for stirring up and uniting the people and bringing about that kind of revolution, in spite of the fact that Jesus said again and again and again, that's not my kind of kingdom. Those who live by the sword will die by it. It didn't get through. How many people do you know are Democrats or Republicans before they're Christians? How many people do you know who, who 
own the name of Christ and claim to be followers of Jesus, whose primary allegiance is actually to red or blue. And you can pick that up by the way they speak about the value systems. If, if it is our opinion that, that either one of the major parties of our day encompass within themselves all of the values that God cares about in his agenda, we have to spend more time with God. We have to spend more time with the scriptures and let that word sink in. Judas never did. He never did. Never changed his politics. Uh, though Jesus very plainly called him to. Judas heard Jesus preach a lot about how narrow the gate of the kingdom was. How wide the road to destruction was. It did not stop Judas from walking down that wide road in the end. And it did lead to Judas's destruction. Judas heard about all of the parables that Jesus taught about forgiveness, about a God who would forgive people who did really awful things, about the God who, uh, who was like the father whose son sold him out and said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me your money. And they went off and wasted all of the inheritance he'd been given and then came crawling back and how that God stood at the gate, how that father stood at the gate and said, Welcome home, son. Come into the family again. He heard the story about a God who was like a, a shepherd who, in finding that just one of his sheep had gone missing, even though he had 99, left the other 99 and said, I care about that one sheep. I'm going to find that sheep and welcome that sheep home, carry that sheep home. Judas heard all the stories. They never sunk in. Because when he had failed and when he woke up to his failings, he could not believe in the possibility of forgiveness. And he took his own life. You can hear the word of God a lot and not be transformed by it. Sitting in church, going to Bible studies, calling yourself a Christian is not enough. Some of the meanest people you've ever met go to Bible studies. And you know that's true. So if we cannot point to specific places in our lives where knowing Jesus has actually changed the way we use money, the way we uh, think about politics, the way we deal with our enemies, the way we handle conflict, the way we work with forgiveness. If we can't see some changes, some, this is the delta, the repentance track, and, and, and find these places and talk about them, then maybe we haven't taken Jesus in as much as we think we have. Jesus said that his followers will be like soft soil. And, and when he plants the seed of his teaching in them, it will take root and it will bear fruit. Jesus was really clear about that in multiple parables. So if there hasn't been visible, demonstrable change as a result of Christ's teaching, it's a sign that my heart is too hard. Or, or that I'm spending too much of my time in places where the birds of our society are snatching away the seed. Or, or I'm allowing the weeds of our world to grow up around me and, and, and choke out the growth before it happens. Which is why Jesus said, therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Make sure you're really listening. Do you think of yourself as a better listener to Jesus than Judas was? Are you softer soil than Judas was? 
Or are you one of those people who nod a lot and then go out and betray the intentions of Jesus? Wow. I don't like going to churches that talk about this stuff. That is really a hard question for every one of us. But we must choose to open our hearing and our heart to God because, as I said last week, unless we flee our false self, unless we die to to the false sources of significance in this world, we cannot really follow Christ in the way that he calls us to follow him. And that's really important because of another lesson we learned from the life of Judas here. The third big idea I want to give to you is this. The more potential that you have for God's kingdom, the more you will be targeted by the enemy. Do you know the name Satan? Have you heard of him? You know that the name Satan is, a, is, a, is an ancient word that literally means the adversary. It means the one who wants to see the way and the will of God opposed and who wants to bring down the people that God wants to bring up. That is the adversary. And again and again in our recent times, we have seen all kinds of extraordinary people who appear, I think, to have been targeted. I think it is not uh, surprising or maybe even a coincidence that, that, the, that the leaders of our time, religious leaders, uh, celebrities, uh, uh, po- business leaders, uh, political leaders of various kinds, who, who were enormously influential people, who could have done such amazing things with all of that influence, were the very ones who stumbled most. No accident. The enemy targets people who can be of a potential influence for God's kingdom. And the scriptures tell us that this is the case. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 3 we read, Then Satan entered Judas, he called Iscariot, who was one of the twelve. John 13, 27 says that the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Judas didn't just stumble by himself. He was tripped. He was tripped by an intelligence that loves to find potential-laden people and bring them down. So one of the most important prayers that you and I can offer each and every day is, our Father who art in heaven, deliver me from evil. If you don't have any potential to be used for the kingdom of God, don't bother. He won't bother with you. But if you have potential, I promise you, you are on the target list. And so praying, God, deliver me from evil. Keep me from falling. Show me, God, where I'm off track, where I'm wandering away, where I'm losing perspective, where my moral compass is off, God. Help me with this. And God, give me the courage. Send me voices that speak to me so that I get back on the path. The psalmist knew of this need in his own life after a major failing, and he writes this. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. When you're messing up, when you're starting to go off track, anxiety is one of God's little amber lights on the dashboard of our character saying, wake up, get back on the road, get into the lane again. Search me, God, test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
Which brings me to the last principle from the life of Judas that I want to touch on today. You can do your best. You can be a person of prayer. You can be a person that listens deeply to God. You can be a person that courageously follows and denies self. You can do all of those things. You can be a person who sows the seed of faith in other people, and it may not take. It may not take. My friend Colin Smith, pastor of the Orchard up in Arlington Heights and elsewhere, says this. Judas's story contains an important lesson for parents, leaders, and friends who grieve over someone they love who has abandoned the faith. Is that you? Do you know somebody that you love that you hoped would grow up as a follower of Jesus and they've walked away, at least so far? These people, he says, worry. What could we have done? What more could we have done? Did we fail in our teaching? Did we fail in our example? Should we have immersed our son and daughter or friend in a different kind of environment? But Judas teaches us, says Smith, that even the best example, even the most compelling evidence, even the finest teaching, the ultimate environment for incubating faith, what could be more optimal for incubating faith than traveling for three years in the personal company of Jesus? That even that is not always enough to change a human heart. The human heart must make its own choices. And that's desperately important for us to remember as we think about those we love who at this point have chosen to follow a different path. Our job is to keep sowing the seed, to faithfully influence the ones we can in whatever way we can, to pray for them, to speak with them, to share our own story. We must never give up. We must never, ever give up doing this. It's striking to me that the Bible says Jesus knew what was in the heart of Judas. He knew what was in his plans. But Jesus still washed his feet. Jesus still broke bread and passed it to Judas. When he saw Judas coming toward him in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus still welcomed him. Do, friend, he called him. Friend, do what you have come to do. I believe that had Judas not lost hope, had despair not overcome him, had Judas stayed around long enough to see the resurrection, he would have found that Jesus met him, met that grieving, remorseful heart with arms of acceptance and welcome home. Judas might have gone on to become the greatest of all the disciples. So, beloved, Keep sowing the seed. Keep planting the seed. No matter whether you began brilliantly or badly with Jesus, finish strong. Make the decision. You're going to finish strong. Remember that you can listen. I can listen even more deeply to God. And there's a very good chance there's more he's trying and wants to change about us through his word. Remember that we too can be strengthened by the Holy Spirit to overcome the wiles and schemes of the enemy, the adversary. And remember that Christ can use you and wants to use you to sow more seeds of his eternal kingdom in this world that so 
needs the flourishing that Jesus came to bring. This is not my opinion, all of this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Lord, none of us wants to be on the blacklist. None of us wants to be owned by the darkness instead of serving, Lord, as agents of the light. So call, call us to yourself afresh, Jesus. Give us ears to hear and hearts to follow you for life. For in your powerful name, we dare to pray. And all God's people said, amen.